15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9. We have ignition sequence start. The engines are on. 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. We have commit. We have liftoff. Liftoff at 7.51 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We have cleared the tower. Christmas Eve to you, Wayne. Good heavens, it is Christmas Eve 2018. Well, it's not Christmas Eve yet. We're recording it on Saturday, and you're hearing this on Christmas Eve, and, and, and maybe maybe after Christmas Eve. So we're, we're taping this for Christmas Eve, but it's not Christmas Eve. But anyway, Merry Christmas. Hi, Dan. Merry Christmas. Uh, what, what is... Uh, what is uh, how come we're doing a podcast on Christmas Eve? Yeah, I know. That's kind of weird. Uh, I guess we could start it yeah. with Jim Lovell, Frank Borman, and Bill Anders with a crew of the Apollo 8 mission. 50 years ago, this Christmas Eve, Right. those three men were sent on a very daring mission. The first time any human beings had left Earth, the first time any human beings had circled the Earth, and I didn't know, Wayne, until this podcast, that I heard that the, the Russians had actually sent a mannequin yes, in orbit around they the moon. Did. There was, so they did. They beat us. There was some semblance of a, of a human yeah, being. Right. So uh, it was uh, December 1968. Yeah. And uh, the Russians, the same year, in September, had sent a spacecraft to the moon that was called Zond 5. Oh, that's right. Zond, they, that's they, right. Had, they had sent uh, two or three other spacecraft like this to try to go to the moon and back uh-huh. prior to this, and they had failed. So Zon 5 was the first time they succeeded in going and orbiting the moon and coming back. And so Zon 5 had various uh, living things on, on board. And it had a mannequin on board. So, Dan, had, they had bacteria. They had uh, 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 some kind of flies. Oh, yeah? They had some plants. They had seeds on board. Wow. And they had two Russian tortoises, Dan. Oh, my goodness. And so uh, they they wanted to see what would happen with the exposure to radiation yeah, you from looked, space. You looked into that more than I did the background of that part. But did the tortoises come back alive? They made it back, but they did lose a little weight. They, they did. Oh. <laughs> So the first biological things to orbit the moon 
were turtles. That's right. So, so <laughs> and they, bacteria. So they orbited the moon, went back to the Earth, and they splashed down in the Indian Ocean. Oh, my gosh. I, w- I wonder, can you, uh, is there mannequin on display in the Kremlin somewhere? I, I don't know. <laughs> not, that, not that I've ever heard of. This is the first thing to go around the moon. <laughs> <laughs> I think the tortoises would be more significant, yeah. probably. No, but that—that's that's really. So, yeah. what was the name of the spacecraft again? Zond Five. Zond Five. That was actually in 1968, September of 68. Yeah, right. It, it, it beat us to the moon. So some turtles beat us to the moon. However, we were the first to send uh, three men. That's right. Across uh, the vastness of. What was it? Two hundred and thirty-three, two hundred and thirty-four thousand um, miles. I think someone said two hundred thirty-four thousand miles from Earth orbit to go to the moon, and it was rather remarkable too, c- considering when it happened and how it happened and what happened when they were in the moon when they got there. A um, little bit of background about the rocket that took us there, Wayne. You know this. Yeah, this there was well. They took off on the, with the Saturn V rocket, and uh, there had only been two prior uh, firings of the Saturn V rocket before yeah. the Apollo 8. And that one went off course, right? One of them went off course. It sort of uh, started vibrating violently and went off course, but, but it, there was no astronauts on board then. So there were two tests prior to Apollo, day, Apollo 8 of the Saturn V. One of them succeeded, and one of them went off course. So this Apollo 8 wasn't just the first uh, manned mission to orbit the moon. It was the first manned mission of a Saturn V. Yes, it was the first time that astronauts were on board at Saturn V. Yeah, and you know uh, the bit of the backstory about the individual that helped design the Saturn V? Werner von Braun. Werner von Braun, yeah. Yeah, he... Uh, some people, most, a lot of people know this, but he, he was almost killed in an Allied air raid in World War II because he was working for Hitler and as a Nazi rocket engineer. And right. he is the primary chief engineer behind the V-2 rocket. That right. There's quite a story about that and how him and his brother uh, kind of snuck out of Germany and they smuggled large quantities of equipment and research documents from the German rocket program smuggled them out of Germany. That's amazing. And uh, he, I think it was Werner von Braun's brother that found the American army to and surrendered to them. Yeah, yeah. It was there was a an air raid. Uh, he talks about. I have a book where he's talking about. Um, they were at their lab or wherever they were, and bombs started falling in their research lab, and people obviously perished in that. But he had narrowly, he and some colleagues narrowly escaped the bombs and got into an air raid shelter just as bombs were dropping overhead. He, he nearly was killed. And, uh, of course, as you know, he surrendered to the Allies, and then we used him uh, to help us go to the moon, which is quite a story. And Mr. Braun Brown was a, was a believer. He was a, a Christian. Yes, and of course in Germany the uh, scientists like him were forced to work on the German rocket program. Yeah. A little quandary there. What would you do if you were a German rocket scientist in World War II? Uh, you, you know, it wasn't so, to be clear, I think Mr. von Braun was not, uh, not like Hitler's higher ups who were dedicated to the. Right. And a lot of Germans did not like what Hitler was doing. Right. Not every German was on board with the Holocaust and things like that. And a lot of people were afraid of 
going there for resisting the Fuhrer. Yes. Uh, and so there was a great deal of fear that it had to have been extremely difficult. So that story, that in, in and of itself is an amazing story that we got the Saturn V rocket from, right. from uh, Warner von Braun. Now, the historical, the cultural time, this launch of Apollo 8 couldn't have come at a better time for our own country because it's 1968. I was an infant. You were, what, 9, 10? I was 10 years old. Yeah, I was born in November of 68. Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated. Uh, John F. Kennedy's brother, Bobby Kennedy, um, running for the presidency, uh, declaring his candidacy for the presidency, uh, was, right. was killed by Sirhan Sirhan. And um, the Vietnam War was going on. And this is another thing that I did not, I, I probably knew this, but just remembered, uh, reread it this morning, that the father of John McCain, the senator from Arizona who just recently passed away, his dad was in charge of the Navy at the time of Apollo 8. It, the, the story goes that, that because of the Vietnam and everything else, the Navy wanted to give a lot of their soldiers furlough. They wanted to give them time off. Um, but in order for Apollo 8 to happen, they had to have a splashdown. They had to have a splashdown. They had to have a Navy in place. Right. And so they asked, they went through uh, Admiral McCain <laughs> to get permission to have the Navy in place for the splashdown of Apollo 8. That's interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, McCain was sitting in a meeting, chomping on a cigar, and uh, after the presentation was given to him, he stood up and threw the cigar down on the table. And the official that had given the presentation was like, oh, I'm going to get an earful. <laughs> and McCain said it was the most brilliant presentation he'd ever seen. And he told his Navy guys to give him, give the NASA folks whatever they wanted. Oh, that's great. So he, uh, he set it up so we could have a splashdown crew. Yeah, and so, uh, Dan, this was during the time of the space race. It was very much uh, the U.S. versus Russia. Right. And uh, We wanted to get there first. Uh, so the Russians... We're really in the lead in the race. Yeah. And then John F. Kennedy has this famous speech. It says, I challenge us to take men to the moon and bring them safely back to the earth. Right. And when he did that speech, we were behind in the race. Mm -hmm. And he was challenging the U.S. to uh, pass up the Russians and get a man to the moon. Right. Now, the Russians sent various spacecraft to the moon, but they didn't send manned a manned uh, spacecraft there. And so we talked about Zon 5. So they orbited the moon and came back before we did. And so when in order for us to do it in December of 1968, NASA had to speed up their launch schedule. Right. They, they had planned to do this mission in 69. Yeah. And, and they, they speeded up the schedule. And at the time in December of 68, the lunar lander was not avail available yet. Right. No, they were it was, it was overweight, and uh, they hadn't had the computer software completely written for them to take the lander to, to the moon. So, that, right. so um, they, they were thinking of flying to the moon right. without it, uh, but Apollo 8 was not initially planned as a lunar orbit mission. Right. So they, they came up with this plan to do this, just orbiting the moon and coming back. And this is a challenge in itself, Dan. It's like they have to take the spacecraft and aim it out into the darkness 
and hope that they got their calculations right. right. They're aiming at a spot where the moon will be yes. in a few days, not where it was right. and at the time of the launch. And if they... If they um, Miscalculate. If they miscalculate, they could either crash into the moon, yep, or, go or, or they could go by it. And if they if they flew by it, they might not be able to get back to the Earth. It, right. it could put them into an orbit they couldn't yeah. get out of. Very so they, well. they had to they had to increase the, the, their velocity. They had to control their velocity. And about halfway, there's a there's a spot. It's interesting. I mean, about halfway between the Earth and the Moon is what we call uh, a Lagrange point. So there's a it's a yeah. it's a gravitational balance between right. two orbiting bodies. It's mm-hmm. where the gravity of Earth, uh, the rocket is no longer in the gravity of Earth, and it isn't quite in the gravity of the Moon. Right. If you had the right telemetry, you could you could sort of hover in this gravitational equilibrium. Right. So they had to get through that, and then they had to what they call a tra- do a translunar injection, where they leave Earth and they right. go into or enter into uh, the the gravitational pull of the moon. And that is what you just described was a very precarious position because they had to get it just right. If they went too fast toward the moon, they'd crash into the surface. If they went, they didn't go fast enough or if they didn't get close enough to get into the gravitational pull of the moon, they could go flying right past it. So this was a a tricky endeavor. Yeah, so I think they were going like over 2,000 miles per hour uh, or something. It was a high speed, I mean, to get to the moon. Yeah. So they had to slow down and change their trajectory so they would get into orbit around the moon. Mm -hmm. They wanted to be about 69 miles above the moon's surface. Uh, It took them uh, 68 hours to travel from Earth to the moon. And they... uh, they orbited the moon ten times over twenty hours. Yeah, they, they were t- debating about. I think the Apollo Eight patch is a figure eight drawn between the Earth and right. the Moon, right. and that was the original thing, one shot and back. But they decided to do ten times. But part of that orbital, part of the reasoning behind that was that the Moon's gravity itself would be a sort of slingshot back to Earth, so that would gain them. But when they went around the back of the Moon, they lost radio contact. Right with Houston, right, and it, it was a little precarious because they'd never done this before. Never, they don't know what's going to happen, and and they would know after about thirty minutes of radio silence if it, if the time increased of radio silence, they know that the crew wouldn't have made it. So it was a very tense thirty minutes every time they went behind the moon. Um, you know who the voice of Houston was for the Apollo Eight mission? Voice of Houston. The one that communicated with, with Lovell? I don't remember. Michael Collins. Oh, yeah. Who was the uh, Columbia commander of Apollo 11. Okay. Yeah, so it was very huh. fitting that he his, well. he was the voice of Houston for this trip. Um, so the faith of these men and their families, so Jim Lovell, Frank Borman, and Bill Anders, um, they were Christians. They uh, two of them were Episcopalians, and one of them was uh, Catholic. Bill Anders, I think, was Catholic. Uh, Borman and um, and uh, Lovell family were uh, Episcopalians, and so they were they were in church Christmas Eve, as I understand it. Um, but the wives, the astronauts' wives, knew the stress of this because when they said goodbye to their husbands, they realized, you know, this was a, a quick decision. It seemed kind of hasty. We'd never done this before. There'd never been any Apollo manned missions before. Right. They didn't have a whole lot of training for this, and they were going to do it. So it was a little scary for them. 
And, and there's a very famous picture that they took on, on the trip. Yes. You know, they, they were on their way uh, between Earth and the moon. And they looked back toward the Earth and, and took a picture. Or no, I'm sorry. No, it was after they were orbiting the moon. They were orbiting the moon. Orbiting the moon. They looked back toward the Earth and took this picture of what's called Earthrise. Yes. Did you know there's so there's the blue there's the picture of the blue Earth in the color film. Right. That was taken by Bill Anders. There's actually another one uh-huh. that was taken by Frank Borman, but it was a black and white uh, grayscale. Mm-hmm. And the Earth is basically it's it's like Earthrise, only the Earth is touching. Uh, the the crescent of Earth is touching the uh, horizon of the moon, and it's a grayscale picture. And huh. that was actually the first picture. But Anders and Lovell were scrambling to get color film so that Anders could get a color picture of it because yeah. it was. Now they weren't scheduled because on these flights you're scheduled to do everything at a certain time. They were not scheduled to take pictures, <laughs> so they were yeah. s- scrambling to find color film. And there's a recording where you can hear uh, Bill Anders and Jim Lovell uh, talking about, "Give me some film, Jim. Give me, give me some color." Film. Film, you know? That's right. <laughs> oh my god, look at that picture over there. There's the earth coming up. Wow, that's pretty. Hey, don't take that. It's not scheduled. <laughs> you got a color film, Jim? Hand me a roll of color quick. Oh man, that's crazy. Quick. quick. Down here. Just grab me a color. A color exterior. Three yeah. up. That one? Yeah, I'm looking for one. C three sixty eight. Anything, quick. Here. What? Hey, I got it right here. Let's, let me get up this one. A lot clearer. Bill, I got a phrase that's very clear right here. Got it? Yep. Take the film. Let's show them up here. Wait a minute. Let me just get the right setting here. Calm, calm down, my boy. Oh, I got it right here. Oh, that's a beautiful shot. I mean, what a picture that is. That even... picture was a very famous picture, and it had a lot of influence on people. There was a lot of talk about that picture for a long time, about the beautiful Earth from space and uh, uh, taking care of the Earth and, and all of this. So one of the things, Wayne, that uh, Frank Borman was told by NASA, this is, the, this is the, I think, one of the greatest stories I've read so far, is Borman in his biography talking about what NASA told him to do when they were in orbit. Oh, yeah? Say something appropriate. Say something appropriate. <laughs> because <laughs> they would be televising yeah. this, uh, this broadcast. And it turns out the crew enters, the Apollo 8 capsule enters lunar orbit on Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. And so the whole world would be watching, and NASA just told Borman, say something appropriate. So <laughs> Borman was like, well, I don't, I don't quite know... <laughs> It's a, it's a bit much for me. <laughs> so he, uh, he, uh, he tasked it out to somebody. He tasked it out to a friend of his. So this is a quote from Borman's book. He had his hands full with an intensive training program and quickly uh, realized he'd be given a task for which he had neither the time, training, nor uh, perhaps the ability to perform it as deserved. So what do you tell people on Christmas Eve 
for the, the, the first time human beings reach another world. So he needed the help and called his friend Cy Borgen. He was a science advisor at the United States Information Agency. And uh, so Borgen started to work on what could they say, what could they say. Uh, and he couldn't come up with anything. So he passed it on to his friend, a guy named Joe Latin. He was a newspaper writer and a public affairs official. And uh, Latin took on the task of coming up with something uh, for the astronauts to say. So this has been handed off twice now. And, and nobody, <laughs> nobody wants the job. <laughs> nobody wants the job. What are we going to say? So Latin describes, uh, Borman describes how Latin struggled to come up with something. And so uh, Borman writes this. He says, Latin quickly realized that this was far from a piece of cake. In the Latin family's modest home, the children had been put to bed, and Joseph, working in the kitchen, was struggling with the theme of peace on earth, but simply couldn't get it right. In 1968, the U.S. was deeply involved in a bloody conflict in Vietnam. At home, there was a uh, constant violence arising from race riots, leftist student protests, assassination attempts, as well as the assassinations of Kennedy and King Jr., Latin was fully aware of the opponents of American policies and could easily rip a piece on Earth speech to shreds, calling it hypocritical, cynical propaganda. Something more compelling was needed. Later that evening, Latin got out his Bible and began to feel better. He threw himself into the New Testament, jotting down a number of notes from different places, but as the minutes and hours tricked by, uh, ticked by, he still didn't, nothing fell into place, so he began to panic. And that is at about 3.30 in the morning, uh, Borman writes. Uh, he had no idea where to begin, and why not begin at the beginning? That's what his wife suggested to him. So it was his wife's site. So it was the wife of the second guy that got tasked to write okay. this who came up with the idea. Christine Latin was the one who actually came up with the idea at 3.30 in the morning at the Latin household well, to well, read from the book of Genesis. Good for her, yeah. Yes. So he Did realized, he said, that's it. That's it. And so the crew uh, approved the idea. And they didn't tell anybody. Nobody, <laughs> nobody knew. Okay. And so by, on Christmas Eve, when, when the broadcast began, um, that was what they did. They read from Genesis 1, in the beginning. Dan, I remember this. I was, everybody was watching TV about the Apollo 8. It was absolutely mm -hmm. the most watched television in the world, maybe ever. And uh, I remember them orbiting the moon. They were orbiting the moon. You were seeing pictures of the moon service going by under the spacecraft. And they were reading from Genesis. And this is a, kind of a surprise to a lot of people that they did this. Yeah. In fact, you might remember uh, a well-known atheist, Madeline Murray O'Hare. Yes. Sued the administrator of NASA at the time. I don't remember his name. They, she took him to court, or tried to. Uh, she sued them over uh, the government reading from the Bible like this and then a government project. They thought, she thought that was... a unconstitutional but the uh, the case was dismissed and they it was appealed up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court dismissed it because there's no jurisdiction on the moon that's what the, the yeah. argument was <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who has jurisdiction up there to be able to decide a civil case so that's that's kind of the story of, of how they came to read um, Genesis, and it was Bill Anders who started in the, in, with the line in the beginning, God created 
the heavens and the earth. And it's interesting, uh, another author, Andrew Chaikin, if I pronounced his name right, uh, a good book called A Man on the Moon, he, he writes about this. He says that on the night, the Christmas Eve, in Houston, the night was crisp and clear. When the verses of Genesis from Genesis came down, a crescent moon shone high overhead, and after the telecast ended, more than one witness went outside to look at it. So it was a clear crystal crescent moon in Houston the night that they were reading from it. Right. So it was a historic moment of ancient truth and modern human space exploration coming together. Really right. Very Dan, appropriate. Dan, I read somewhere someone said that there was it took a total of about 400,000 people to make the Apollo 8 mission happen. Yeah. And considering all the people who constructed the spacecraft, I don't know who all that is, but um, I, I was just thinking about the fact that this is this is something where believers and non-believers are working together on a project to uh, explore, right? And uh, Well, it's like our book. Yeah. I mean, the book you and I are in is uh, Catholics and Protestants coming together to talk about the heavens and the glory right, of God. Right, And it seems like, you, you know, there, this is one aspect of what I think the glory of God really is like. It's not here on earth, nothing is perfect, of course. But when we focus on the heavens, it seems to, you know, there's a glory there that unites us, at least temporarily. And I, I see that when we, as we've been working on the book, that we've been working with a lot of top scholars and smart people who love the universe and the heavens and Jesus and we can all focus on what we agree on and come up with something pretty cool. Right. You know, that's uh, that's really neat. So let's get back to Genesis for just a second because that's the core of kind of what we're talking about. Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we're still talking about that. Yes. It's wonderful. And then in, as, it, as the book goes on, as you know, it mentions the greater light and the lesser light right. given to us for what? For signs? For signs, seasons, seasons, days, and years. Days right. and years. Uh-huh. And it's interesting in the Gospel of John. John, what John calls what we call miracles, John calls signs, samion. Yes. So what Jesus did, the wedding, the water into wine at Cana, yeah. all of the miracles in John, to John are signs. Right. And so I look at it as the heavens are signs for God's glory. And then when Jesus comes down to earth, he performs similar signs. So, so the signs, so creating the stars, the sun, the moon, are, it's a miraculous. It's a sign. That right. We are being told this is a sign. This is for, your, for times, for seasons, but also for ultimately for Jesus and his glory. So he comes down and performs signs. But So I think of the moon, in one sense, of us trying to uh, fellowship, I guess, with the glory of God's signs, right? There's, there's, there's a kind of glory in the heavens that we want to participate in. We want to right. be near it. We want to experience it. Right. And uh, Jim Lovell, they, he's in his 90s now, same with Frank Borman. They gave an interview on Fox uh, recently about this anniversary thing. And uh, Lovell was talking about how they all, all three astronauts had their faces pressed to the glass of their capsule as they went around the dark side of the moon, just <laughs> like kids in a candy store looking yeah. out the window. Because right. it, it was, and Gene Krantz, the flight director, during the flight was so enthralled 
by the kinds of descriptions that the crew were offering that he kind of almost got lost <laughs> in terms of the yeah. mi- mission timing because they were describing something no human eye had ever seen that close before. Yeah. It was really, truly remarkable. Due to what you're seeing is the Western Hemisphere looking at the top is the North Pole. In the center, just lower to the center, is South America. All the way down to Cape Horn. I can see Baja, California, and uh, the southwestern part of the United States. There's a big fog cloud bank going northeast. Covers a lot of the Gulf of Mexico, going up to the eastern part of the United States. And it appears now that the east coast is cloudy. I can see clouds over uh, parts of Mexico. The parts of Central America are clear. And we can also see the light bright spot of the uh, subsolar point on the light side of the uh, Earth. Okay, for colors, the waters are all a sort of a royal blue. Clouds, of course, are uh, bright white. The reflection off the Earth is appears uh, much greater than the moon. Uh, the land areas are generally a brownish, uh, sort of dark brownish uh, to light brown in uh, texture. Many uh, vortices of clouds can be seen of uh, various weather cells. And that long band of uh, serious clouds that extend uh, from the entrance to the uh, Gulf of Mexico going straight out across the Atlantic. The Terminator, of course, cuts through the Atlantic Ocean right now, going from north to south. The southern hemisphere is almost completely clouded over. And uh, up near the North Pole, there's quite a few clouds. South, uh, southwestern Texas and southwestern United States is clear. I'd say there's some clouds up in the northwest and over uh, in the uh, northeast portion. This is Apollo 8 uh, coming to you live from the moon. We've had to switch the TV camera now. We showed you first a view of Earth as we've been watching it for the past 16 hours. Now we're switching so that we can show you the moon that we've been flying over at 60 miles altitude for the last 16 hours. Bill Anders, Jim Lovell, and myself have spent uh, the day before Christmas up here uh, doing experiments, taking pictures, and uh, firing our spacecraft engines to maneuver around. What we'll do now is follow the trail that we've been following all day and take you on through to a lunar sunset. Moon is a uh, different thing to each one of us. I think that each one of uh, each one uh, carries his own impressions of what of what he's seen today. I know my own impression is that it's a, a vast lonely, forbidding-type existence or expanse of nothing. It looks rather like clouds and clouds of pumice stone. And it certainly would not appear to be a very inviting place to to live or work. Jim, what have you uh, thought most about? Well, Frank, my thoughts were very similar. The vast loneliness up here on the moon is uh, awe-inspiring, and it makes you realize just what you have back there on Earth. The Earth from here is a grand oasis of the big vastness of space. 
Bill, what do you think? I think the thing that impressed me the most were the lunar sunrises and sunsets. These in particular bring out the uh, stark nature of the terrain and uh, the long shadows really bring out the relief uh, that is here and, and hard to see in this very bright uh, surface that we're going over right now. The horizon here is very, very stark. The sky is pitch black and the earth, or the moon rather, excuse me, is quite light. And the contrast between the sky and the moon is a vivid dark line. Actually, I think the best way to describe this area is a vastness of black and white. Absolutely no color. The sky up here is also a, a rather forbidding, uh, promoting expanse of blackness with no stars visible when we're flying over the earth, over the moon in daylight. And one of the amazing features of the surface is the roundness of most of the craters. It seems that most of them have a round mound type appearance instead of sharp, jagged rocks. All, only the very newest uh, features have any uh, sharp definition to them. And eventually they get uh, eroded down by the constant bombardment of small uh, meteorites. In one sense, they saw a sign up close, a sign of glory up close, just like the disciples, just like resurrection or walking on water or turning water into wine or calming the seas. These are all signs that Jesus performed, and making the universe was a sign. Right, it was, and it was a lot more than the facts of what they were doing. Mm -hmm. There was uh, this, this awe and wonder at, at everything they were seeing, and uh, even looking back at the earth, which you'd think would be familiar, they were awed at the earth at the sight of the earth rise. And, uh, of course, um, Dan, as you know, there's a number of astronauts, uh, even up to the present, at present time, that have mentioned their faith, and you've mentioned some of them. Um, there are things that happened after Apollo 8 where some of the astronauts have talked about their faith here and there, like James Irwin. Yes. Uh, and uh, Ch Charlie Duke is another one. He was uh, in the Air Force and became an astronaut. And Charlie Duke was the voice of Houston for Apollo 11. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. And uh, you know I met Mr. Duke. Really? Three years ago at a men's breakfast Bible study. Uh, Lee and Rebecca told me he was coming to town. Just the humblest, sweetest man. He, he was taking pictures with people. He, I walked right up to him and shook his hand and just thanked him for his service. Um, there's uh, Buzz Aldrin was the first to do communion on the yes, moon. Yes, he took right? communion in the lunar lander when Neil Armstrong. Apollo 11. Yes, was. right, right, right. Um, uh, the Apollo 1 fire yes. in, in January of 1967 uh -huh. claimed the lives of Ed White, Gus Grissom, and Roger Chaffee. Yeah. And uh, Ed White was the first astronaut to walk in space, and Ed had a dream of taking the Bible to the moon. Right. And uh, you had, and it finally did. It finally did get to the moon in, in microchip form. Yeah. Uh, Ed, Ed Mitchell took it in, in, in his uh, pocket of his astronaut suit on his uh, what Apollo, was what, Apollo 14 Apollo 14 yeah and uh, so Ed's dream became a, a reality but before that actually happened uh, there was a gentleman who was a friend of Ed White by the name of uh, John Stout who was a pastor a reverend uh -huh. and Stout 
out of the tragedy of the Apollo fire, Stout and several other people got together and formed the Apollo Prayer League. Yes, the Apollo Prayer League. Yes. And uh, so behind the scenes of all those 400,000 people you were saying, talking about earlier, for every Apollo mission that went up, including eight, uh, the Apollo Prayer League had sent out flyers and information and had everybody who was serious about praying, praying. Yeah. for the success of the endeavor and the safety of everybody. Right. Uh, so that's a little known. So that's a little unknown aspect of Apollo that I think is fascinating. Right, kind of behind-the-scenes uh, interesting thing going on there. And if you're interested, I, there's a book, and I could link this in the description below, called The Apostles of Apollo, The Journey of the Bible to the Moon and the Untold Stories of America's Race into Space by C.L. Mersch. And it's an excellent book on tape publishing, and I'll put a link to it below in our broadcast. But if, if you want to know the how faith drove a lot of the astronauts and what was going on behind the scenes uh, in the 1960s and early 70s, right? Uh, you can read this an excellent account of just how serious people were about the space race and about their faith and those involved with it as well. Right? Yeah. So the. Uh exploration of the space program I think is is a God honoring thing uh, as long as it's not taken as being uh, something in opposition to God I mean there are some who who uh, look at it in a way that says it's just the facts it's not there's nothing that points to God in it but uh, I think it's better to for believers and unbelievers to work together and respect each other in doing this, something like this, um, it makes me kind of think about a contrast between that and and the the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis. Yeah, well, that what, what's the sin of Babel is that it wasn't so much the tower building, right, as it was what they wanted to do with the tower, which was make a name for themselves. Yeah, there was a lot of selfish ambition, maybe idolatry connected with this. And it's interesting too, Wayne, because one of the one of the reasons they they want to build this, they say, so that we may not be scattered abroad. You know, yeah. the idea that we want to be, we want to make a name for ourselves, reach into the heavens, and put our name in the heavens. In other words, it's an exaltation above God. Power hungry. Yeah, and yeah. and uh, many of the faiths, many of the faith, many of the astronauts who were of. Uh, Christian faith were not thinking that the moon landing was usurping God in the heavens or becoming godlike. Uh, right. No, Charlie Duke. Uh, Charlie Duke gave his testimony at the the men's group, and you know it wasn't actually going to the moon that where he had his epiphany. It was mm-hmm. coming back. He was at a Bible study and he gave his life to Christ through the invitation of a friend uh, to attend a Bible study. And um, James Irwin, like you said, uh, Buzz Aldrin. Um, Ed White, a lot of these men were were devout believers, and they weren't perfect. <laughs> they weren't perfect. There was a lot of problems in the astronaut corps, but you know their faith in Christ was genuine. And I can say that honestly. I think a lot of their faith, their faith was I, a lot. This couldn't have been done without God's, you know, miraculous yeah, I, intervention. I just think it's you know I wasn't even a, I was not even a Christian at the time I of 1968. But um, looking back, I think it's very beautiful, though, just reading from Genesis while they were orbiting the moon because it's a reminder of God as creator. He's provided us everything we have, and uh, it's 
whenever we accomplish something that seems to be great, Dan, we need to remember God because we're not so smart as we sometimes think we are. <laughs> right. So it's cool. So if you're, if you're listening to this on Christmas Eve, uh, 50 years ago, the probably just as historic, arguably just as historic as the first moon landing itself, was our first trip around the moon. Um, as represented in the persons of Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders. Yeah, Dan, I read that one of the administrators at NASA was talking to the wives of the Apollo 8 mission. Mm-hmm. And he said that, I think it was Frank Borman, he's talking to his wife, and he said, uh, it was basically a 50-50 chance that your husband will get home. Yeah, yeah. So this was really dangerous. Yeah. And they, had, they were doing something that hadn't been done. The Russians hadn't done this. And so, but it came off beautiful. It was a almost perfect mission. Yeah, everything functioned as it was supposed to. And uh, just goes to show you what you can do with faith and ingenuity. Yeah. You know, you you do all you can and trust God for everything that you are doing. But it faith, was a, faith and hard work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think I think the exploration for myself, Wayne, does does attest to. I mean, I don't even know how much money was spent to, to do these things, billions in today's dollars, hundreds of billions perhaps. But it shows you just what the Bible means by the heavens declaring the glory of God, that, that there's something so glorious about them that we want to spend all this time and effort and do dangerous things to experience it, you That's know, right. you know to, to participate in that glory. Yeah, and it stimulates our imagination. It does. To imagine uh, God in a different way. And uh, I, I was thinking about Psalm 139. It says, where, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. So mm-hmm. we can't run from God by running away out into space. No. And I think it was uh, in, our, in our book, uh, Dr. Ward talks about... Uh, Yuri Gagarin, briefly, who was the first human being to orbit the Earth. Yes. The Russians. So the Russians did beat us there. They put the first man in, around the Earth orbit. Right. Uh, Yuri Gagarin, Michael talks about, was a believer, um, as much as I understand it. And there's a famous line attributed to him that when he came back, he told everybody, Gagarin did, that, that he didn't see God in space. But uh, Dr. Ward argues that that's not exactly what... Gagarin said. What we think happened was that Khrushchev said that Gagarin said that. <laughs> that Nikita Khrushchev made up the idea that we uh, that the Russians didn't see God in space. <laughs> but what would the Soviet Prime Minister? Why would he say that? <laughs> yeah, so he's covering up what he really said or something there. But why? Why? Why even mention that? You know, the idea that 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 we have somehow atheism has been proven by our trip in space. I mean, what, what were you looking for, Nikita? What does God look like? That, right. Yeah. <laughs> how do you know what you're looking for? What, maybe you're not looking for the right thing. Right. Uh, you know, are you expecting, what are you expecting, you know? So, uh, but yeah, I think, I think it, I think like John says, and like Genesis says, that the, the moon is just one of many signs that uh, reflect God's glory. Yes. Reflect the creator, reflect who Jesus is. So, well, thank you, Wayne. Merry Christmas to you. And uh, we, wish you all at good heavens here from us at good heavens we wish you all our our uh, our five or six listeners <laughs> merry christmas thank you for listening tonight we hope you've been blessed by it check out uh, we'll have some pictures 
uh, and some links uh, in the description below about where you can find out more about Apollo so, stuff. So Merry Christmas from all of us at Good Heavens, all two of us. Merry Christmas. Uh, now approaching uh, lunar sunrise, and uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the Earth, and the Earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. <laughs> God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called these seas. God saw that it was good. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth.